You're listening to audio from St. Luke Church in Lexington, Kentucky. If you'd like to learn more or donate to this ministry, please check out our website at stlukelex.com. Great to see all of you. Today, we are going to jump into the book of Zechariah. Raise your hand if that's your favorite book of the Bible. We got one. Yes, we got one. Okay. Uh, Yeah, Zechariah is one of the 12 minor prophets, and they're called minor, not because they're in any way less important, but simply because these books are shorter than the three major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And so before we jump into Zechariah's message today, I want to give a brief illustration that might help us understand one way to approach the prophets. So this summer, uh, me and my wife and my brother and sister-in-law, we went to Peru. We hiked the Inca Trail. It's absolutely gorgeous. It's a four-day hike that takes you to Machu Picchu, one of the seven wonders of the world. It's these ancient Incan ruins in the middle of the Andes Mountains. So the end of the third day of hiking, the tour guy comes up to us and says, look, like I know it's been a long day, you're probably exhausted, but just five more minutes past the campsite, and you'll come to this archaeological site called Winyawina, and you see it on the screen here. And it's absolutely beautiful. You have these terraces that are built into the side of the mountain. You have these ancient stone structures, and you look out and you see this vast mountainous landscape, and it's absolutely gorgeous. And it's so vast that it's almost hard to tell the mountains that are closer to you and those that are further away. There's these, mountain, there's these snow-covered peaks in the back and these other ones that are, they just fade into one another. And it's almost like it's two-dimensional. But to get the whole picture, you need to see all these mountains, the ones that are closer and those that are further. And this is sort of what reading the prophets is like. Because one thing that the prophets do is they tell us about what God is going to do in the future. Now, for them, that future might be in a few years, a few hundred years, or a few thousand years. And sometimes it's all kind of presented together. And we have to be able to distinguish the near view from the far view when we read the prophets. And that's what we're going to do today. But in order to get the whole picture, we need to begin with the near view. What is happening in the prophet's own day? So Zechariah is one of the post-exilic prophets, which means that his ministry takes place after the people of Israel have been exiled in Babylon and they come back to their land. So a brief historical recap, just to catch us all up. In about 597 BC, the Babylonian Empire is a very powerful empire in the region. And Nebuchadnezzar has begun his conquest of the southern kingdom of Judah. This is where David's descendants are kings. And he has implemented this policy of forced migration. So he is removing people from their homeland and moving them to Babylon. This is what we call the exile. And so this began in 597 BC. And then about 10 years later, the most devastating moment of this conquest happens. This is when the chief of Nebuchadnezzar's army, he destroys the temple in Jerusalem. 
So when the temple is destroyed, the people feel as though they have lost everything. Not only have they been taken from their land, but their temple has been destroyed and they feel as if they have lost their national and their religious identity. And it feels as though God has utterly abandoned them. They no longer feel as though they are God's chosen people. But about 50 years after uh, the destruction of the temple, King Cyrus II of Persia, he conquers the kingdom or the empire of Babylon. And when he does this in that very same year, he implements a policy of his own in which he allows people who had been exiled by the Babylonians to return to their homeland. This included the Israelites. And when he sent the Israelites home, he gave them a task, and that task was to return home and to rebuild the temple. And so uh, at this time, this first wave of coming back to Jerusalem was a time filled with great hope and great expectation for these people. They had been under this curse of exile, but they thought that now that they're back in the land, everything's going to be perfect. God is going to return. He's going to establish our kingdom once again And this might just be his eternal reign. Maybe it's starting here and now with us. So great hope and great expectation. But by the time we get to Zechariah, about 20 years have passed since this initial return. And guess what? The temple has still not been rebuilt. So all these hopes that they once had of this restoration that God would bring, it's certainly not there anymore. I mean, they haven't rebuilt the temple and much less the whole entire kingdom being restored. None of that has happened. And so it's this hopeless situation. And so into this, Zechariah gives his message. And it's well summarized in the first couple of verses of chapter one. Here's what he says. Yahweh was extremely angry with your ancestors. So tell the people, thus says Yahweh of armies, turn back to me and I will turn back to you. This is the gist of his message. And it's not a new message by any means. Remember what uh, Moses told the people of Israel before they crossed over into the promised land. He said, today I set before you life and death, blessing and curse. If you obey God's covenant, you will be blessed. And if you disobey God's covenant, you will be cursed. And so because they disobeyed, this curse came upon them and Part of that curse was this exile. But the interesting part about Zechariah's message is this. Even though the people have come back to the land, he and Haggai, they say that the people are still under this curse. They're still under the curse of exile because they have not turned back to God. But Zechariah doesn't dwell on this too long. In fact, his message, the whole book, it's really focused on one thing, and that is God's future restoration of Jerusalem. And so he's much more in the business of looking forward instead of looking backward. And he wants to give them this message of hope that if they do in fact turn to God, that this blessing awaits them, God's restoration of the kingdom. And their present responsibility now, in light of all of this, is to rebuild the temple, to get to work as an act of obedience and as a sign of their trust in God's future. So this is the overarching message of Zechariah, and it's important to keep this in mind as we get into our text for today. He's mainly concerned about this future time in which God is going to restore Jerusalem and the whole kingdom of Israel. So let's read our text today together and just try your best with the names. 
The word of Yahweh came to me. Take from the exiles, from Heldai, Tobiah, and Yediah, who came from Babylon, and for your part, go that day and enter the house of Josiah, son of Zephaniah, and take silver and gold and make a crown, and place it on the head of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says Yahweh of armies, Here is a man whose name is Sprout, and from his place he will sprout and build the temple of Yahweh. He will build the temple of Yahweh, and he will assume majesty. He will sit and rule upon his throne. There will also be a priest upon his throne, and there will be harmonious counsel between the two of them. The crown will be for Halem, Tobiah, Yediah, and Josiah, son of Zephaniah, as a reminder in the temple of Yahweh. People far off will come and work on building the temple of Yahweh. Then you will know that Yahweh of armies sent me to you. This will happen if you diligently obey the voice of Yahweh your God. Now this passage that we just read, this comes as the climax of a series of eight night visions which Zechariah receives from God. And these eight night visions are some of the most confusing and perplexing images that we get in all of Scripture. It even rivals that of Revelation. But the point of all of these perplexing visions is this. God is going to restore Jerusalem. And in order to understand the text we just read together, it is important for us to understand the fourth and the fifth of these visions, which stand at the very center of these eight visions. They are absolutely crucial for understanding our passage today. So what happens in the fourth vision? In the fourth vision, we meet a man named Joshua. Joshua is not the one that led the conquest of the land of Canaan, but this is Joshua who is the high priest of the community of returned exiles in Jerusalem. So Joshua, he is a priest. And what Zechariah sees is Joshua standing before the divine council. He sees God, and he sees Satan, and he sees all the other angels as well. And Satan is accusing Joshua, but then God rebukes Satan, and then he has the angels come and take Joshua's filthy garments off and replaces them with these pure priestly garments. And what this dramatic image, what it symbolizes, is that God is basically hitting the reset button on the priesthood, including Joshua. Because prior to the exile, they had become so corrupt that they couldn't offer atonement for the people. They couldn't do their duties that they were um, instructed to do. And so he's basically hitting the reset button. He is purifying the priesthood. And he's saying that this will be a pure priesthood that will be a part of the restored Jerusalem. That's what this vision shows us. And then also as part of this vision, the Lord speaks to Joshua and he tells him this. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your fellow priests sitting before you, indeed these men are a sign that I'm going to bring my servant Sprout. Now we'll hear more about Sprout in a minute, but he's an important figure. And it's important to recognize here that he is the servant of God. So the fourth vision, what we take away from it, is Joshua is the high priest, God's going to restore the priesthood, and then there's this servant named Sprout who is going to also be a part of this restoration. Next, we come to the fifth vision, and here we meet a man by the name of Zerubbabel. And on the list of baby names, this (laughs) is number one for me. (laughs) 
but I've had a hard time convincing Grace so far. <laughs> so we're still working on it. Now, admittedly, the name's a bit hard to say, so I'm just going to call him Big Z from now on, if that's okay with you all. So who, who is Big Z? Big Z is the governor of Judah. So remember that when the people come back from exile in Babylon, they're still under the control of the Persian Empire. So it's just a province of the Persian Empire. But this man, Big Z, is the governor. And more importantly, Big Z is a descendant of David. And that is very important because it was to David that God made the promise that uh, he would have an eternal dynasty, that his own lineage people, his sons and the sons after their sons, these would be the kings of Israel. And then uh, this is what the prophet Zechariah says to Big Z as part of this vision. He says that Big Z is the one that's going to lay the foundations of the temple and his hands will complete it. It says this house here, but the house refers to the temple in Jerusalem. So that's what we need to remember about Big Z. Big Z is the one that's going to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And then uh, Aside from this message that's given to uh, Big Z, there's also this vision that Zechariah receives. And the vision he sees, it's of these two olive trees, and the oil from those two trees runs down through these two golden pipes, and then from the two golden pipes into a golden bowl, into a golden menorah or a lampstand, and the oil is what's fueling the candles. And Zechariah is just like, I don't know what you're talking about. And we would be the same way too, right? We don't know what's going on here. And so he asks. He asks, what is this image of these two trees and all this gold stuff? What does it mean? And the angel tells him that these two olive trees, they represent or they symbolize the two anointed leaders of the restored Jerusalem. They represent the two anointed leaders of the restored Jerusalem. So keep that in mind and also remember that it's Big Z who's going to rebuild the temple. Now, as I said, these two night visions that we just looked at, they culminate, they build to a climax in the passage we read earlier. And so what we read earlier, however, it's not another vision, but it's what's called a sign act. This is where the prophet acts out God's message. And so what does he do? Well, Zechariah takes silver and he takes some gold. He makes a crown. He puts it on the head of Joshua. This is the priest that we met in the fourth vision. He crowns Joshua the high priest with this crown of silver and gold. And then he addresses Joshua, speaks to Joshua, and this is what he says. Thus says Yahweh of armies, here is a man whose name is Sprout. So there's Sprout again that we met in the fourth vision, the servant of God. And it says that Sprout is the one who will sprout from his place and he will build the temple of Yahweh. Now let's make some connections. Who was it that we said would rebuild the temple in the fifth vision? Big Z, that's right. But here it says that it's this sprout, this servant of God. And so there's a warrant in this passage here, especially for Zechariah's original audience, to conclude based on this vision that Big Z is the sprout. He is this servant of God who will not only build the temple, but also what it says here is he will assume majesty. He will sit and rule upon his throne. This is uh, their great expectation that he is the one who's going to rule in God's restored kingdom of Israel. And we also have reason to believe, since Joshua was the one who was crowned in this vision, that he is the other anointed leader. Remember the vision of the two olive trees. One seems to be Big Z, and the other one seems to be Joshua. 
These are the two anointed leaders of God's restored kingdom of Israel. Now, because these two people are alive and well in Zechariah's own day, Joshua and Big Z, this vision that Zechariah shares with them, this brings with it great hope and great expectation. Because if these two leaders are alive and well today, that means that the kingdom is coming soon, very soon. And it's some serious motivation, too, for them to get to work on building the temple. Because they even have this expectation, perhaps, that when they, as soon as they build the temple, God's going to return. He's going to install these two leaders over Israel, and all will be well. The kingdom will be restored. These visions will come to fruition. That is what this vision seems to suggest for these people in Zechariah's day. But there's a few problems that we encounter with this interpretation. First of all, Big Z is not mentioned by name in this passage. It talks about the sprout, and there's maybe some connections to make, but he's not mentioned by name, which is a bit odd given that he is directly addressed in the fifth vision. Second of all, it's Joshua, not Big Z, who gets the crown that Zechariah makes, which, again, is a bit odd because, like we said, Big Z is a descendant of David. He's the one with the royal bloodline. He's the one that people expect to be king. So why is it that Joshua is getting the crown put on his head? That seems a bit odd, too. And then third, recognize that what we have on the screen here, this is the prophet Zechariah speaking to Joshua, the high priest. But look at this last line here. It says that there will also be a priest upon his throne, and there will be a harmonious council between the two of them. So he seems to be talking about another priest, not Joshua. Another priest besides Joshua. And so what all these problems imply is that while Joshua and Big Z, they are incredibly important for the community of returned exiles, but they are not the ones who will rule in the restored kingdom of Israel. After all, we have the benefit of reading on. We can read beyond Zechariah's day, and we find out that Big Z isn't really mentioned all that much in the rest of the Bible. He gets a lot of attention in Zechariah and Haggai, but besides that... We don't hear much about this guy who was supposed to be this great king. And also we read that the Israelites, they continue to struggle under the oppression of foreign nations. After the Persians, it's the Greeks, and after the Greeks, it's the Romans. The cycle doesn't end. Hundreds of years, and the kingdom has still not been restored. So what's going on? Well, recall what I said at the beginning about the near view and the far view. We have to keep both in view to get the whole picture. The near view of Zechariah's message is this restoration that does happen under Joshua and Big Z. There is a measure of restoration that takes place. Yes, the temple is rebuilt and some of the functions of the priesthood, they resume, and it's all very good. But the kingdom is not restored. God has not returned to the people like he said that he would. But the far view is far more important for us because it points us forward to God's final restoration of the kingdom of Israel. The crown that he placed on Joshua's head, that crown does not belong to Big Z, and it doesn't belong to Joshua either. Because even though it was put on Joshua's head, he takes it off and puts it in the temple. This crown does not belong to either one of them, but it is put in the temple as a reminder. A reminder of what? 
This crown is a reminder that God's servant, remember Sprout, he will wear this crown. He will be a priestly king who will rebuild the temple, assume majesty, and rule. And so it's left for us to ask, who is this Sprout? Well, the Sprout, this is the Messiah. It is Jesus. The crown belongs to him. He is the priest and king who will rebuild the temple. And this language of sprout, this is metaphorical, and it's the same thing we encounter like in Advent, the stump of Jesse, this small beginnings and growing up into something great. It's the same imagery being drawn upon. This is the Messiah. It is Jesus. Remember when Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. This is what we celebrate on Palm Sunday. This is, he's going into Jerusalem the week of his death. And he comes in, and as he rides in, he's riding on a donkey. And this is in fulfillment of one of Zechariah's other prophecies from chapter 9, where Zechariah says, Look, your king, emphasis on king, is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. We might imagine that Jesus coming into Jerusalem as its king, its humble servant king, he's making his way to the temple. And maybe just maybe, he's going to the temple to retrieve the crown that is rightfully his. He's going to retrieve that crown of silver and gold that Zechariah left there for him. But of course we know he doesn't make it that far. He comes to the temple and he finds the courts being used as a marketplace and he faces opposition from the priests and the people. No, instead of retrieving the crown of silver and gold... The priests and the people, they reject Jesus, and they give him a crown of thorns. But you see, it's precisely in this rejection, in Jesus' being rejected by the priests, that is when he becomes our high priest. Because by dying on the cross to atone for the sins of the whole world, that's what he did. He atoned for the sins of the whole world when he died on the cross. Rejected by the priests, he becomes our high priests. He is our ultimate sacrifice. And this actually comes in fulfillment of what Zechariah says in the fourth vision. We didn't look at it before, but when Joshua gets reclothed, there's also this stone that gets put before him, and the stone, for whatever reason, has seven eyes on it. But it also has this inscription, and the inscription says this, I will remove the guilt of that land in a single day. This is what Jesus does when he dies on the cross. He offers forgiveness of sin. He dies as the sacrificial atonement for the sins of the whole world. And the author of Hebrews is explicit about this. He says that unlike the other high priests, Jesus has no need to offer sacrifice day after day, first for his own sin and then for those of the people. But this he did once for all when he offered himself. Jesus is the once-for-all sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, a sacrifice that no high priest, not Aaron, not Joshua, could ever make. He is our high priest. But we know that the story doesn't end there. Jesus did not only die, but he was resurrected. And it's in this, in his resurrection, that he fulfills what Zechariah said about him. He assumed majesty, and he sits on his throne, and he rules. One of the classic texts for this 
priestly king language that we get is Psalm 110, and Jesus uses it of himself, and so do the later New Testament writers. And this is God the Father speaking to God the Son. This is David's psalm, but it's God the Father speaking to his servant, the Son. He says this, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then later he says, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Notice that Jesus, he remains reigning and ruling, sitting on his throne even today. He didn't just do that for a time and then go away, but he remains there. He remains there until the Father puts all of his enemies under his feet. And even, as Paul tells us, that last and greatest enemy, death. And death is already being defeated because of Jesus' resurrection. And it will be no more when he returns and we too are raised to new life with him. Death and sin are defeated in Jesus' resurrection And so he presently reigns and rules over all of heaven and earth. He is our king, and he is our priest. You see, the New Testament offers a consistent witness that Jesus is the priestly king that Zechariah pointed us to. And so the hopeful expectation that those exiles that have returned, once put on people like Joshua and Big Z, we can now confidently put that trust and that hope in Jesus, because of what he has already done for us. Now, at this point, you might be wondering, you know, we spent all this time talking about Joshua and Big Z and the Old Testament. Why couldn't we have just, you know, jumped forward and talked about Jesus, the priest king? It's all right there in the New Testament. Well, I got three reasons. One, I think it's fun. (laughs) Second, There's a richness and a depth that we miss if we don't go back to the Old Testament sources that the New Testament authors are drawing upon. I have one Old Testament prof at Asbury who tells me that the New Testament is simply just a commentary on the Old. Now, some New Testament folks might take issue with that, but you get the point. They're integrally related. They draw upon each other. It's it's essential to read both together. And then third, and finally... The reason we're doing this is because I want us to consider the similarity of our situation with that of the people who had returned from exile. Remember, they had lost everything. They had lost their temple. They had lost their land. They had lost their national and their religious identity. They felt as though God had completely and utterly abandoned them. And I'm willing to bet that some of us in this room at one time or another, maybe even today, have felt a similar way. We felt as though our motivation to do anything is just completely gone. We feel as though we may be estranged from our, friend, our family and our friends and the things that we know well. Or maybe we just feel like we don't know who we are anymore. We've lost our identity. We don't know who we are or what we're supposed to do. Or maybe we just feel like we have been hung out to dry by God. Maybe we think we've turned our back on him one too many times. He's turned back to us before, but not this time. But it's in this desperate situation that we so desperately need the message of hope that Zechariah and the New Testament brings to us. We need to remember, like we've talked about these past several weeks, that God is in search of us. God is in search of us. And so Zechariah, he even calls the stubborn and rebellious Israelites to turn back to God so that God would turn back to them. It's simple. But for us, we know Really, it's not about us turning to God and then God to us, but God has already 
turned our way, and he's waiting for us to turn to him. And when we do, Jesus becomes our priest and our king. He becomes a priest for our past sin and a king for our future hope. As priest, he gives us freedom from sin's curse. He offers us freedom from the guilt of our past sin. And as king, since he has already already defeated sin and death, as those who belong to him, we share in that victory over sin and death. We are given power not to sin. We're given power to lovingly obey God. Not just free from the guilt of sin, but we're given power over it as well. And because he's our king, we also have this great and glorious hope in the blessing of his coming kingdom. That kingdom has already broken powerfully into our world in and through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And we have a confident hope that when he returns, that kingdom will be established for good. And as as those who belong to him, we share in that eternal kingdom. When he returns, we will be resurrected to new life with him. We have this great and glorious hope of the blessing of his coming kingdom. He is the priest for our past sin and the king of our future hope. But one piece is still missing. Remember what Zechariah said, this sprout, who is a priest and a king, what would he do? What was his job? To rebuild the temple. That's what Zechariah said he would do. So does Jesus rebuild the temple? Well, in a way, he does. In John's gospel, this is what he says. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And John tells us that he was speaking of the temple of his body. And to understand this, we have to recognize that in Scripture, the temple is not important because of it's a physical structure. The temple is nothing more or less than the place where the fullness of God's glory dwells. That applies to the tabernacle. That applies to the temple. It applies to the incarnate Son of God, Jesus. The fullness of God's glory dwells in Jesus. Therefore, he is the temple. And when he is killed on the cross... That temple is destroyed, but only temporarily, because when he resurrects, the temple is rebuilt. So yes, Jesus, the priest and king, the Messiah, he rebuilds the temple. But an even more surprising transformation occurs after Jesus resurrects and he ascends into heaven, because Jesus did not leave the earth without a temple. When Jesus ascends, the Holy Spirit descends. This is Pentecost, when Jesus' first followers are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's no coincidence that tongues of fire come down around them. This is the same fire that filled the tabernacle hundreds of years before. This is the fullness of God's presence dwelling in them. And as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, that as spirit-filled followers of Jesus, we, both individually and as the church corporately, whose cornerstone is Christ, we are where the fullness of God's glory continues to dwell. We are God's temple. And it's fascinating to me, this verse we read from Zechariah, at the end he says that people far off will come and work on building the temple of Yahweh. This is a consistent image in Old Testament prophetic literature that when the day of the Lord comes, when when, when God returns to Jerusalem, and his kingdom is restored, far-off nations, people from the ends of the earth, they will flock to Jerusalem, and they will praise God there. It's this great eschatological vision. 
But what we find in the New Testament is that instead of people from far off flocking to Jerusalem, Jesus' followers are filled with God's Spirit. They become God's temple, and then that temple goes to the ends of the earth. It's this dramatic and beautiful reversal. We are God's temple. We take his presence to the ends of the earth. And so that is our present responsibility. The people who had returned from exile, their task was to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Our task, because of what Jesus has done for us as our priest and our king, is to be God's temple. We are to be the temple as an act of obedience and as a sign of our confidence in God's coming kingdom, which is already broken powerfully into our world because of what Jesus, our priest and king, has already done for us. As God's temple, we are called to fill the world with God's presence and his power and his praise. We are the place where people encounter the living God. We are the people who fill the world with his praise. We are the people who live by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are God's temple. So the question for us is, will we live into this power that God has given us? Because of what Jesus has done for us as priest and king, we have a response to make. He's already done all the work. It's for us to be the temple, to fill the world with his presence, his power, and his praise. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for who you are and all that you have done for us. God, we thank you for your prophet, Zechariah, who proclaimed this message of great hope, of a, the blessing of your future restoration. And God, we thank you for your son, Jesus, to whom Zechariah pointed, who is our priest in his death and is our king in his resurrection and his exaltation. And because of what he has done for us, because in his death and resurrection he rebuilt the temple and has sent his own spirit so that we might also be the temple, give us the, the power to turn to you, God, to receive what you have already done for us, to be filled with your Holy Spirit so that we might be the place of your presence and of your power and of your praise in the world. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.